Step Behind the Curtain, as renowned private investigator Sheila Wysocki unravels the truth behind real, tragic deaths that don't add up. When we left off before the Thanksgiving break, the Cruz family attorney, Tom Shaw, discussed Bordier and the jury selection process and techniques used for the Cruz trial. On this episode, we introduce Taylor Shaw. Taylor served as co-counsel during the Jonathan Cruz trial alongside his father, Tom Shaw. Taylor will dive into the motion in limine, what that means and present each side, the plaintiff's as well as the defendant's motion in limine. Wonder what the defendant wanted to keep out of court? Listen and find out. Taylor, will you give our audience your background, where you went to college, where you went to law school, and the law that you have been practicing? Sure. Um, I am born and raised in Dallas. Uh, went up north to the University of Michigan for my undergrad, came back down here, uh, went to SMU Law School, actually same as my dad, undergrad in law school. Right out of law school, I mainly did corporate work and some commercial litigation. After that, for about a year and a half, I did non-subscriber defense. That encompasses a lot, like slip and falls or criminal acts by third parties at places like Dollar General. Um, then in 2020, I joined up with my father and since then have been doing uh, primarily plaintiff's personal injury work. What we're going to be discussing today is the process called motion in limine or motions in limine. Can you explain to our listeners what that means and is it applied to all criminal and civil cases? Kind of give us an idea of what exactly that is. It's a motion that's filed by either party during the pretrial process, asking that the opposing counsel and their witnesses not mention or elicit responses regarding matters that uh, they deem are inadmissible and or prejudicial. It, it is a standard part of the pretrial process. Um, and I say pretrial, there are some set things that usually happen in the week, two weeks, one month before trial begins motions and limiting being one of them. I would say they're more often used by the defense than plaintiffs. Plaintiffs usually the best position is just let everything in, deal with the bad facts as they come along, try to modify the narrative as you see fit. Um, the defense, what you'll most commonly see that they try and limiting out is uh, what we kind of refer to as the golden rule, which is asking jurors to put themselves or I guess themselves in the position of the injured person. So how would you feel if you had slipped on this puddle at the grocery store? And that was one of the limiting items that Andrew G used here in Bruce. So are the limiting items discussed in the presence of the jury or is the jury not present when those go the, before the judge? The jury is not present. And I guess taking a step back and elaborate elaborating upon my prior answer, um, you seek to have the court grant your request for things to be limited out to provide a punishment um, that you can either have that opposing counsel, if they were to bring it up, sanctions, or the likelihood of getting a mistrial if something is brought up that was limited out. Give an example of something that would be sanctioned. Let's say there was a serious criminal offense that the defendant had been convicted of 
plaintiff's counsel brings it up while questioning that defendant in the presence of the jury, the risk there is that it could just taint how the jury views that person's. Why would a judge keep anything out in a case? Why not let it all in? You want what's admissible and what's relevant and what's not prejudicial before the jury. You want a lawsuit determined theoretically based on the facts and the law. Taylor, can you tell us what the plaintiff's motion in limine was for the Cruz trial? Yeah, there were two big limine items that we didn't necessarily think we were going to prevail on, but we did give what we thought were strong arguments. The first was trying to limine out the text message purportedly sent from Jonathan, I want to die. And our main contention there was we believe there was evidence to suggest that it was not sent from him based on the overall timing of things. And because there was question as to the authorship, that that should not be before the jury. Ultimately, we didn't succeed, but we were able to present a picture of that being entirely inconsistent with Jonathan's worldview at the time. You know, somebody that was about to break up with his girlfriend that was living life, enjoying life. Then the other limine item that we did want to spend some time on and, you know, give our best fight was any contention that Jonathan was depressed at the time of his death. And that was something that ultimately did come up in trial. It was not granted that limine item, but honestly, I don't think it hurt us. Their contention was he had one Xanax prescription that somehow equated to him being suicidal and or depressed. I think ultimately the jury found that argument to be ridiculous. The world knows what Xanax is. I wouldn't say it's used to treat suicidal ideations or ridiculous levels of depression. It's an anti-anxiety drug that a lot of our nation is prescribed, I'd say. The only person that ever said he was depressed, let's remember, was Brent. Everybody else said no. Yeah. And Jonathan was at the doctor's office just two days before he died. And there was no history or notation that he was on any antidepressants or anxiety medication at that time of that visit as well. Correct. Yeah. And it's something he got one prescription of and then moved on in life. He got over whatever he was getting, you know, dealing with. The only reason Jonathan had asked a doctor to prescribe him something for his anxiety was because he had a very big presentation and his nerves were overtaking him. We spoke to several witnesses who told us once he took one, he did not want to take any more. He didn't feel like himself. A lot of people will take something before they make a presentation. A lot of people take something before they go to court. I was prescribed Xanax to get on an airplane. I was nervous to fly. But let's remember, Jonathan was prescribed this over a year before he died. And he took one pill over a year ago. To make that still seem that it's relevant or that he's currently taking that medication is ridiculous. What that tells me is that the police officers did not do 
their profiling or victimology. They did not look at Jonathan's history. They did not look at his medical records. They did not count the pills that were in the bottle. Shame on them. And did they actually interview people that would have been able to tell them otherwise? I can answer that because I interviewed the people and no, they did not. The only person that ever used depressed was Brenda and the police took her word for it and ran with it. What's interesting about that is you have to look at the overall scene and go who benefits from Jonathan being depressed, the person saying he was depressed. Right. And supposedly she said that to one of the detectives on the scene who then told it to the medical examiner's office who quoted in their documentation that according to the detective, the girlfriend said he was depressed. So it's 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 a trickle effect. A one person sets that narrative and it just took on a life of its own. So the fact that we did not prevail keeping it out was not a big deal. No, and none of the things, none of our limiting items were these super consequential things. Um, we were going to try and, you know, try and make these arguments, see if it worked. If it did, great. If it didn't, we'll be fine. There were two that he agreed to, but those were just very basic things. Any evidence not disclosed or produced by Lazaro during the discovery phase of the lawsuit. Sure. I that's normal. We wouldn't have expected him to object to that. Uh, and any reference or testimony by Lazaro, her attorneys, or her witnesses to any arrest of, accusation of criminal conduct against, or confinement, Jonathan Michael Cruz, that did not result in a criminal conviction. And that, he agreed to that. There, That did come in, but we were able to shape that in our favor of somebody that made some mistakes in college but had learned from those mistakes. Why wasn't sanctions given to him for bringing that up? It, it was reflected in records that were all admitted. We really didn't have a huge leg to stand on there. Frankly, like the other limiting items, it was something we already had an explanation for. And don't you in lawsuits have to look at the situation and the case that's happening then, not... 10 years ago when you were 20 something, you know, of course it's the situation and case right at that moment. Yeah. Or theoretically the moment that the wrongful conduct occurred. Yeah. I, you know, it inherently has to be for Jonathan because of the nature of things. Some degree it is a mosaic, but that we're piecing together parts of his life. But the most pertinent thing is where his mind was, as of February 2014. Were those all of the limiting items on the plaintiff's side? Yeah, the others, uh, the others mostly dealt with the fact that she had previously taken the fifth. And when we brought those up to Judge Montgomery, she just blankly said, yeah, she's taking the fifth. And she can't do anything from this point forward. So there's no need for these. If a limiting item is granted versus denied, Tell us the difference in that. And is there a burden then on the attorney to actually prove that item? Or is that just obviously going to be proved in 
testimony and your witnesses. And granted, if the limiting item is granted, and if, you know, let, let's use the golden rule for an example. Let's say the plaintiff's counsel says, jurors, how would you feel if your sister was shot while working at Dollar General? The defense counsel at that point should object immediately and probably approach the bench, discuss with the judge and say, we've limited out the golden rule. I, you know, I'm going to move for a mistrial. And that's, that'd be what would most likely happen. And the judge would likely grant that motion or, you know, likely granted probably would um, or admonish the plaintiff's attorney in front of the jury. And there's, there's no set result for violating a limited item. It's really depends on the degree of violation. So in our case, when G violated it, you guys didn't make a big deal out of it. No, no, we did not. And I think our approach is we really had nothing to hide about Jonathan's life. Correct. Was, I mean, we, we wanted to, he's not a perfect person. None of us are. And we wanted to show the jury the good and the bad. And that overall, of course, Jonathan was a good person. We weren't trying to hide anything. We were just trying to tell what happened that night. What were some of the defendant's motion in Lemonese? Besides that limity item of her in those incredibly just poor taste pictures of bloodied up with the fake guns, they just did form limity items. Nothing really to even note. I Not that there's anything wrong with what Andrew G. did, but he just took the same thing that he would have filed in any given case and filed in this case, plus that one regarding the photos. I, it was the golden rule, who would pay damages, attorneys making comments as to the credibility of witnesses. These are just basic things you'll see in any given lawsuit. So nothing that particularly stands out there. He, he, you know, nothing wrong with anything he did. We understood it all. Uh, nothing that really raised our hats. A lot of people haven't seen the pictures and know what we're talking about. After Jonathan died, a group of people from the Kung Fu, I don't know, family that went out and they did a photo shoot. Danielle, let's kind of go through and describe them. When we were in trial, Andrew G. referred to these pictures as Halloween pictures. That was very clever because they're so horrifying. Well, it's to my understanding that those were actually not dated around Halloween. They were not a costume. Brenda was in a dress. She was with a gentleman that was in white shirt, black pants, and a tie. And they had a bloody knife. She had blood coming out of her eyes like a teardrop. They had their hands covered in blood. They were not costumes. I just want to make that very clear because when I hear the word Halloween associated with these photos, it's almost like they're trying to paint the picture that it was a costume. It was not a costume. It was just a bloody photo shoot. And it was in extremely poor taste. No matter what time of year they are, no matter who posts them. There was also the photo that was shown in court of Brenda holding a toy gun and her hand on the trigger. And that one was equally as disturbing. It just, 
where her mind goes when taking these photographs after Jonathan was killed is beyond my scope of thinking because I think it's so disgusting and inappropriate and the fact that they were published on a public forum like Facebook where anybody can see them of course it's going to be subject to interpretation to me it was just in really poor taste all around poor taste there were comments added to those photos that I guess the group of people there thought they were really funny and they referred to a dead body in Brenda. It's not funny. There was a dead body in a room with Brenda, and it was somebody's son. Also, I know personally that after you have experienced or been any part of losing someone violently, you really don't want to be around blood and gunshot, stabbing, anything. To this day, I can't drive down the street that Angie was murdered, my roommate. I can't imagine putting blood on you after I've seen somebody with a gunshot wound in their chest and blood all over them and smiling and carrying on, those pictures were seen by Jonathan's family, his mother, his sister. How do they feel seeing something like that? And again, it's not Halloween. I think that was very clever on Andrew G's part as an attorney to try to spin it. Andrew G also made it sound like it was this professional photographer that you know set up this photo shoot and granted she may be a professional photographer but she was also a friend of Brenda's as well as a member of the Kung Fu studio whether she's a photographer for business or not she was a member of the Kung Fu studio so she knew Brenda she knew Danny she knew Pam and she most likely knew Jonathan where do you have the check that moment where you go, you guys, this isn't actually a good thing to do. It's not funny. I think we have lost all sympathy and empathy for victims. There's Pam and Danny seeing these photos. How horrifying for them. It was worse than any kind of Hollywood monster movie. Well, and whether they believe Jonathan was a victim or not, as he rightfully is, but whether they believed it or not, it's still a person who lost their life. So it's still in poor taste, just months after he died. And there's a smile on her face during those pictures as well. That is the most disturbing thing to me, is they were smiling and laughing in those photos. What the photos did, though... Again, it shows a pattern. The photos showed a pattern that I believe was right for Tom and Taylor to get it into court. They're horrifying. But no, and it's it's poor taste. I I think for anyone, um, I, I don't get what would be going through your head taking doing that sort of photo shoot. But yeah, I I, I didn't understand it. So Taylor, what did Judge Montgomery rule on 
Brenda's attorney not wanting those photos to be entered? She let them come in. It's important for us to talk to the audience about what happens leading up to a trial. I believe that people should know what these families go through, what they have to fight, and how hard it is. And unless you have good attorneys and a great investigation, you're up against a lot of shenanigans. Well, and everybody that listened to Jonathan's first season of our podcast, which was season four, when we first told Jonathan's story, at that point, we didn't even have a court date. So the fact that the listeners now can see Jonathan's story from where we did it in season four and now we're in season seven, we're letting you know what the steps that it took to get to trial and what and what that verdict ultimately was at the end of it how hard it is to get any win at any time. And even with a $206 million verdict that says your son did not kill himself, the families still have to fight. And I think it's important for the public to know you're up against the establishment that you pay taxes to, that you rely on, that say they're for the victims. And the only victim is the family. It's a really hard process, but families have to push through this because they can't give up. They can't give up being the voice for their loved one that no longer has one. We appreciate Taylor Shaw coming on and talking to us about legal stuff in Lemony. Without Warning Podcast, available now on all major podcast platforms.